John Wesley used to say, um, or he was quoted as having said that when you're when you've been called into ministry, or especially called into pastoral ministry, that you need to be ready to preach, pray, or die at a moment's notice, right? And so, um, you passed one of the tests, Luke. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I'm grateful for uh, an opportunity to have uh, last week off, a little bit of vacation and respite for my family. Um, and uh, grateful, of course, for Pastor Luke, um, who faithfully brought a word out of Psalm chapter 51. Uh, kind of the, the fallout, the, 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 the soul fallout for King David after, uh, after his affair with Bathsheba and the killing of Uriah. And, and get a little bit of a picture or a glimpse into what was going on within David's heart as he was, as he was wrestling with, well, what have I done? And how do I recover? And what is next? Um, we're going to be wrapping up our series on King David uh, this morning. And we're going to be wrapping up the series really by talking um, a lot about Jesus. And if you've never been a conduit or if you just need reminding, our, our number one core value here is that Jesus is everything and that the gospel changes it all, right? And so absolutely any opportunity that we can have uh, to, like, draw a line from whatever it is we're doing or talking about or thinking back to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're going to do that because we think that if you can't draw that line, then it's not something that we should be doing. Right? It's not something that we should be involved in. It's not something that we're going to spend our time or our money or our resources on. Because in the end, Jesus is everything. And his gospel changes it all. And so we're going to talk, about, um, we're going to talk a little bit about Jesus this morning. Um, and so the question is, why would you, or what is the point of ending a series about King David talking about Jesus? Because they kind of lived in two separate times and... They were not really connected by any, like, you know, major theme or, like, David was an Old Testament guy, right? And he was a warrior king, and he, uh, he defeated the Philistines and the Amalekites, and he had all of this, like, very, this, this kingly um, stature to him. And so, like, way back in the history of the Jewish people. But then you come to the New Testament, which is like where Jesus lives, right? It's like where we, where we read the Jesus stories, like the good Jesus stuff, right? And you begin to read, for instance, Matthew's gospel. Now, Matthew, we know, was a Jewish, uh, was a Jewish person. And we know that he had, a, he had a, um, a very high respect for Jewish culture and Jewish scripture because if you read Matthew in comparison to, say, like the gospel of John— You'll see that Matthew, like Matthew's gospel, is riddled with Old Testament references, where John's gospel, for instance, is not so riddled with Old Testament references. And so Matthew was rooting his relationship and his, his story of Jesus in the Jewish tradition. And so when we come to the gospel of Matthew, we see that it does not take long at all for not only Jesus to be mentioned, but David to be mentioned. In fact, 
first chapter, first verse of Matthew's gospel, right? Matthew's like, okay, I'm going to write a story about Jesus. I'm going to write my experiences with Jesus. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I'm like, well, okay. Well, so, all right, so Matthew mentions it once, right? Well, it's not the only time, and, and certainly this isn't an exhaustive list, but you see um, also Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. Now, as we go on, there's other people that begin to reference or call out to Jesus and speak to him as uh, in his relationship to David. Chapter 12, verse 23. All the people were astonished. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. And all the people were astonished and said, this really interesting question, could this be the son of David? Well, I mean, David was like generations before Jesus. We could belabor the point a little bit more, but you see in Matthew chapter 15, verse 22, a similar, um, uh, 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 similar passage, 15, 22. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. One more, just to drive the point home, Matthew chapter 20, verse 30. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. What is going on here? Like, why, what is the, what is the connection there between David and between Jesus? That essentially, wherever Jesus goes and whoever Jesus is interacting with, People are calling out to him right, and referring to him as the son of David. Well, when you and I think of son, you think, uh, we, we think maybe like of my direct heir, right? Like my, my oldest son, Noah, is 10 years old, right? He is my son. And if someone were to write about him, they would say maybe the son of Cameron. But they wouldn't necessarily say the son of Richard, right? Who is his great-great-grandfather, and so what would be the issue here? Well, when you and I think of son, we think of direct heir. When they were speaking of son here in the Jewish culture and Jewish genealogy and lineage, it wasn't just like direct heir. It was also like person who sat in the lineage of. Like, so like in the direct family tree. It was, it was having to do not just with like one step away in relationship, but in the lineage or um, like the family tree of that person. But this is not, this should not be insignificant. This should not be an insignificant fact. It wasn't just rooting Jesus with his family tree. It was rooting Jesus in a much more significant thing that was going on within the Jewish people. Now if we go back to the story of David. 
We see that much of the beginning of his story had to do with his relationship with Saul and his connection there, right? And as David was coming into his own kingship and, and setting his own, like, direction as king, there were, you know, there were, there were hits and misses, there were victories and defeats, there were good things and there were bad things about it. But one significant thing happened in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God made a promise to David. And that promise was a promise that um, far superseded even David's own personal influence and was a promise that would be fulfilled not in that generation or the next 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 or the next, but actually 15 generations Later, the Lord said this to David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 and 13. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, or when you die, right, and are buried, when your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so David was asking this question, like, hey, as a king, look, I, I should build a temple for the Ark of the Covenant. Right? We talked about that a few weeks ago, what the Ark symbolized for the Israelite people. And I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build a house for God to live in, right? And David was like, or, and God was like, no, 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 that's not your job. That's not what I want you to do. Someone else will do it. Here's a promise that I'm going to make to you. Um, generations from now, from your offspring, I will establish the throne forever. From, from your line, David, a son of yours, or in your lineage, would come one whose throne would be established forever for the people. Meaning, you're not going to lose your throne to some foreign king. You're not going to lose the nation to someone else. Like, David, one of your sons will rule forever. I will build a house, he will build a house that will, that will run and rule forever. Now, this then became a promise that the Israelite people like held on to for dear life. Like, oh, God promised through King David, our most beloved king, that, that his throne would be established forever and ever and ever, right? And you know when you like, when you get a promise and it's a really good one, right? Like it's one that you want to happen, and it's one that you would love to see fulfilled, that it becomes like something that you cling to in moments of real difficulty in your life. Like when things are like spiraling out of control, 
right? And going down the tubes, or this relationship is breaking, or your health is failing, or you've lost your job, or this is happening with your kids, or this has happened at home, um, and like the whole world just seems to be spinning out of control. I mean, I don't know if the world is ever going to spin out of control, you think, right? But then you're like, but the promise. God has promised. God has promised even in the midst of defeat, even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of sorrow, that, that, our thro- that the, the nation, the, the, the throne, will be established forever. Whew. And so this is something that the Israelite people held onto literally for generations in the midst of right foreign powers coming in destroying the temple um, exiling the people right scattering the nation the assyrians the babylonians right coming in and just completely decimating the israelites there was this continual sense of like it's really bad it's really bad it's really bad but god promised david but god promised david But God promised David. And we know that if God promised David, we just got to hold on, and we just got to hold on, and we just got to hold on. And in the in-between, the moment of promise and the moment of fulfillment is the moment where we must express faith and we we must revert our eyes back to the North Star of the character of the one who promised, right? And we're going to hold on, and we're going to hold on, and we're going to hold on. And so in the history of the Israelites, between King David and Jesus were these people called prophets. And they were ones that spoke not necessarily how you and I necessarily think of prophecy, which is like predictive about the future, right? But the prophet's job was to essentially be the mouthpiece of God, to speak to the people about um, consequences, about judgment, about promise, about blessing. And so the prophets continued in this time period between promise and between fulfillment to remind the people, hey, remember, there there is someone, there is an heir of David who is coming. He's coming. He's coming, and God is going to establish his throne forever, and every wrong Will be, will be made right. Every pain will be made into pleasure, right? Every sorrow, joy, every anxiety, peace, every time we've been defeated will be flipped up on its head into victory. Just hold on. Just hold on. Just hold on. And sometimes they had to say it very forcefully, right? And sometimes they had to say it very gently. Two examples here are in Isaiah chapter 11, right? Essentially, the whole chapter of Isaiah is him reminding the people, right, that um, this son of David, this heir of David is coming. And he says it like this. We'll just read a few verses here, the beginning of Isaiah chapter 11. A shoot, like a little, a, a piece of new growth, right? Like the shoot, a branch. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? David's father, right? 
A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Now listen. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power. The spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears like a normal king would do, right? But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Like, Isaiah is reminding the people in the midst of being like, hey Lord, uh, remember us. Remember the promise. Remember how you said we would be established forever. Remember how we would have a good king? Where, where is it? Where is he? We're like, we're kind of underneath it right now. Isaiah's like, he's coming. Don't worry. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, did the very same thing. In Jeremiah chapter 23, Jeremiah says this. Verse 1 through 8. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and will bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David's raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. So then, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer say, well, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites out of Egypt... But they will say, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the descendants of Israel up out of the land of the north and out of all the countries where he had banished them, then they will live in their own land. So listen, the Israelites were living as a scattered people, right? Far away from the promised land, without a ruler, without any sense of like national or godly direction, And the Lord comes to the prophet in Jeremiah and says, hey, remind them once again. Remind the people once again that the promise I gave to Abraham and the promise that I gave to David is now coming to be fulfilled. It's going to happen under the banner of the Lord, our righteousness. See, the Israelites had continually been sitting in this holding pattern, literally for generations, watching and waiting for 
the one that was to be promised. The one who would establish the throne of Israel forever. The one who would lead with truth and righteousness and justice. And so the big question, when Jesus arrived, and that all of these people began to say and see, we just saw the examples in Matthew, is as Jesus was performing miracles and raising the dead and exercising demons and teaching with authority and proclaiming forgiveness in the name of the Father, everyone was like, is this the Son of David? Is this the one? Is this the, is this the promise of the fulfillment? Or the fulfillment of the promise? Is this the Messiah? Is this the anointed one of God, the promised one of God? And they were asking these questions. And sometimes they weren't even asking the question. Sometimes they were just saying, hey, son of David, come, have mercy on me. So they were proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah. Now for you and I, 20, we have 2020 hindsight, right? And we can read the whole Gospel, and we can read the whole Old Testament, and we can look back and say, okay, yeah, Jesus was the son of David. And Jesus was the Messiah. And Jesus was the Lord, the righteous one. And Jesus was coming with truth and justice and righteousness and mercy, just like what was promised. And we can see it all here. Can you believe that those Israelites didn't see it? Can you believe that, that there were people that didn't believe that Jesus was the one? Well, well, we look at the whole thing and we see it like with perfect hindsight vision, right? But imagine this, a people who for so long sat under the wondering whether or not God was going to show up on their behalf like he said he would. And so when the moment actually came, there was this natural moment of like, uh, is it or isn't it? It's the same kind of type of heart attitude that like Thomas exuded after the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus flat out saying, well, yeah, I'm, I'm going to die, but I'm going to come back, right? Essentially. And then Thomas sees him, and he's like, yeah, but I don't know. My experience is that dead people don't come back to life. I mean, Thomas kind of gets a bad rap, right? Like doubting Thomas. I think more like realistic. Can we just call him realistic Thomas? Because there's this sense of we, we get used to and we live into an identity of waiting on the promise rather than receiving the fulfillment of the promise. See, trying to put myself in the shoes of like the Israelites, I try to imagine what it would, like, what it would be like to live in the middle of the promise and its fulfillment. And the question uh, really becomes, I think for you and I, we could, we could talk about the theological connections between David and Jesus all the time and the fulfillment of prophecy and the nation of Israel. And it's, it's fun theological stuff to talk about and it absolutely does matter, of course. But there's this, there is this question, this looming question that kind of flows underneath all of that is that why not just for the Israelites but also for us why does the period between 
a promise from God and the fulfillment always last, last longer than we want it to or than we think that it should. Why does it always last longer than we want it to? If someone says to me, hey, I promise this. And then what, what is our, like, almost our immediate gut reaction is like, okay, well, then give it to me. If you promise, then, like, fulfill the promise. There's this, there's this sense of, like, immediacy or urgency in our lives, right, to get to the finish line when the starting gun of the promise has just went off. Why does it always seem to last longer than we want it to or than we need it to? I, I have some theories about this, right? Both based in, like, the revelation of Scripture and, like, what God is doing to the Israelite people in between the promise and the fulfillment. Also, just experientially in my own life, right? But listen, here, here's something that undergirds it all, I think, is that God, listen, God is not afraid to reveal the goodness of his promise before you are ready to receive it. Like, we may not want to, right, Re like, reveal the, the, we might not want to promise something that we're not ready to deliver on, right? Because then that will, that essentially says something about us, about our character. Right? Well, I'm, I'm going to, I can't promise that until I'm ready to deliver on it. Well, God is not like us, okay? And, and God is not afraid to promise something where there's going to be a significant gap in, in the promise and the fulfillment. Because God is not even so much concerned about even the, the state you are in at the promise or the state that you are in in the fulfillment. But you ever hear this phrase that um, the, 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 the process is actually the goal? Or like the, the journey to get to the promise, the journey to get to the finish line is more important than actually the prize that's won at the end. God is not afraid to reveal the goodness of his promise before we are fit or ready to receive it. Maybe you're, maybe, maybe you're not actually ready for your circumstances to change. Maybe you're not ready for that new relationship. Maybe you're waiting, like waiting, 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 waiting for the breakthrough in your own like mental or emotional health or a new job opportunity. But listen, here's a really, really, really unpopular truth that I have had to learn in like the fire of actually actual lived experience is that, is that God's no to you, when God says no, it's a gift of his goodness. There are going to be moments 
where God may promise something to you. And then you're living in this period of like, but I want it now, and I want it now, and I want it now. And God is saying, no, 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 no. I'm like, God, why are you being so mean about this? Why are you withholding the promise, the fulfillment of the promise from me? What we don't often understand is that when God says no, it's not like, I'm going to make you squirm and wait. But that God's no is an expression of his goodness to us. That if we were given the thing that we wanted or that he promised, at the moment that we think that we need it, it may just destroy us. I think I've, um, I think I've talked about this um, I don't know. I don't know how many times I've talked about it, but it's been like one of the main narratives of my family's life for the last decade, right? Is for seven years, like Sherry and I, my wife and I, we began to try and have kids like almost immediately after we got, uh, got married. We've been married 17 years. And uh, so we, we, we really believed like deep down within us, like Holy Spirit depth, that God was like, you are, you, I, I've created you to be a father. Like, you're going to be a father. And the heart of the father. And you're going to disciple, you're going to disciple your kids into, into um, relationship with my son Jesus. And you're going to, you're going to change the trajectory of your, like your family's, like generational curses, like you, like this is going to be the start. This is going to be the new beginning for your family, right? And I believed that from a very young age. And so when I got married, I was like, like listen, I know this is a promise that God has given to me. Right? And my, my wife kind of expressing the same type of things, right? So we, we figured, right, oh, well, this is going to be easy then, right? Just going to get married and then have kids. And it's going to be great. And, um, well, year one, and no conception, year two, and then year three, and they're like, okay, God, um, the promise, Lord, the promise, Lord, hello, and year four, and then year five, and then we started doing things that we, like, in hindsight, have effectually, like, said, well, maybe if God's not going to get the job done, maybe we'll try and get it done for him. Right, and just ask him to bless it, right? Um, and then that didn't work, and it continued not to work. And so we got to year like seven, and we're like, maybe we misheard God. Maybe, maybe that wasn't. Maybe, maybe God changed his mind. Maybe God is mad at us or angry at us because he keeps saying no. Right? He keeps saying no. I mean, you do the math. Seven years, 12 months out of the year, that's a lot of times that God said no. Right? He said no, and no, and no, and no, and no, and no, and no. And we got to the point of saying, all right, Lord, it wasn't until, it wasn't until the moment where we said, Lord, no longer is all of our life going to be like 
oriented towards and focused on receiving the thing that we think you owe us. But, Lord, we, we, Lord, would you develop in us the spirit and the heart of loving the giver more than loving the gift. Lord, cultivate in us a holiness of heart that desires only to know you rather than just to know you as a means to receive the thing that we think we really want in the moment that we want it. And it was in those moments of like, really it was, a, it was, it was repentance. It was in those moments of repentance and, and turning our hearts towards, towards the, the face of the Lord rather than the, the, the nitty gritty of the promise that the Lord did a lot of miraculous things in our lives. And we now have five kids, um, and uh, none of them are biologically ours, but they're all ours. Right? Because they have all come from, they have, all been, a, they have all, been, all been an expression of God's graciousness, they have all been an, an expression of God's promise, and the reality is, is that there was very deep heart and soul work that the Lord needed to do in my heart and Sherry's heart in our family before we were fit to receive the fulfillment of the promise that happened long ago. And if he would have given us exactly what we think we needed or wanted back at the moment when we said, okay, we're ready, it could have, it would have destroyed us. But God held on to those moments of promise, being like, you're not ready, and my no is an expression of my goodness towards you. My no is an expression of goodness, year two. My no is an expression of my goodness, year three, and year four, and year five, and year six, and year seven. And my prayer, our prayer, is that when our kids, who we've all adopted, right, are old enough to come to this understanding or like this, this, um, this perception of how God decided to build our family, are able to, alongside of us, give thanks to the Lord for not giving Cameron and Sherry exactly what they wanted it when they thought they needed it because then those kids, my kids, our kids, would never have been a part of our family. And so God's no to us was God's goodness in their life. And I'm still in the process of gather, of like grasping that. And I think forever will be. But the reality is, is that God's, when we want and expect the fulfillment of God's promise before we are ready to receive them, it is an act of God's goodness to make us wait, not of his punishment. And this is, this is a main theme through David's life, and this is even a main theme through the Israelites' life as it pertains to Jesus. See, both... Both David and Jesus had this part of their story where they completely 
defied and destroyed the expectations of what the people think or thought they needed when they thought they needed it. Just as an as a example, right? When the, Israelite, when the Israelites first said to the Lord, hey Lord, we want a king. We want a king. Like all the other nations, right? And God was chosen as, or, and then Saul was chosen as king, right? And Saul was this big, hulking man, said stood a foot above everyone, and he was handsome, and he was a warrior. He was the king that everyone thought should be the king, right? Well then, and David came along, and he didn't fit any of Saul's armor, and he wasn't a kingly king. He was a shepherdly king. Right? And the expectation was destroyed. And then later on, right, generations down the line, 15 generations later, here comes Jesus. And people are like, well, that's not, that's not who the Messiah should be. Like, pretty sure that, I mean, like, like, listen, we need a king-king here, God. We need your your anointed, your righteous one, your Messiah to be like, to lead us as the Israelite people and defeat the Roman government and retake the city of Jerusalem and and like establish us as a as a as a, a strong nation and a strong monarch. And like, Lord, why aren't you doing this? And instead, right, God took the wisdom of the world that would say, you need this as your king, as your ruler. And he flipped it completely upside down on his head. Just like he did with Saul and David, he did with the expectations of the Israelites and the Messiah. And instead of Jesus coming as this strong warrior king, he came humbly and gently Not to destroy the Roman government, but to heal the sick. And to feed the hungry. And to minister to the poor and to the hurting. And to call people to follow him. And to call people into repentance and forgiveness in life. I think that there's this, there's this running theme through my life and there's this running theme I trust through, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing through your life as well, is that we, we are almost always asking God to show up in the, situ- in the situation that we're dealing with. And, and we have an idea of what it would look like if God showed up. Like, like, we have written the script, right? For instance, like, well, yeah, God's calling me to be a father, so that means my wife is going to get pregnant, like the first and second and third and fifth times we try, right? And we get this idea in our head, right? And when we get stuck on the idea, right, and we get stuck on the script, we forget that there is a God who has written the story already. He's already written the story The chapters are written. The period is at the end of the sentence. Right? And so, one thing I've been like, I want to I encourage us, you to do, as we begin to um, close up this morning, and then I've been learning that I need to do all the time, 
is that um, I need to be willing, I need to be willing, or as I'm asking the how and the when God will show up in my particular situation, is asking myself also this question, are you willing to see, are you willing to receive a method or a timing or a place or a way in which God will show up in your situation, in your life, that is different than you would expect it to be? Or are we, you stuck so firmly in one direction that you're not going to allow him to ruin your expectations? About five years ago, I remember right where I was. I asked the Lord, it was in prayer, and I asked him, Lord, something to the akin of like, Lord, make me into a better, more wise, more gentle, more humble, more teachable, more like, just better leader in your church. Like, help, Lord, just, like, I'll, like round, round, round it out for me. Like, help to create just a better, like, help me understand how you want me to lead better. There's lots of stories that go along with that, but there was about a thousand times since then, right, since praying that prayer, where I'm like, ah, that's not what I meant, Lord. Like, yeah, Lord, I, I said and prayed, I, I want to be a better leader. I want to be a better leader. I want to be a better pastor. I want to be a better, like, I want to I follow you more closely. I want to be, like, but Lord, could you, like, let off the gas a little bit? Because that's not exactly what I was expecting or wanting or... But God's no to my expectations of what that means is an expression of his goodness, and I believe that by faith. The Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promises to you. The Lord is gracious the Lord is gracious, and the Lord is good, and his no to you in the seeming slowness of the fulfillment is an expression of his gentleness, his mercy, and his love as he prepares you to receive the thing that he has already decided you will receive. Let's pray this morning together that we, um, that our hearts would begin to be molded and shaped and changed, not by our own expectations of when and how we receive, but that the Lord would give us 
a portion of his wisdom that defies the wisdom of the world, confounds the wisdom of the wise. Let the worship team come back up as we, as we pray. If you take a moment, take a moment, and I want you to quiet your heart. And quiet your mind. Close your eyes and sit in a brief moment of silence. Take a deep breath in. And a deep breath out. Lord, we release frantic, almost chaotic control maybe it's just the attempt to control we are so quickly trying to organize the pieces of our lives Right, so Lord, that we, we get what it is that we need or want or think we need or want. And maybe that has to do with something that we believe that you've promised us or maybe it's just something that we're striving towards or a goal that we have. But Father, we confess that it is so easy to be caught up in the race for the prize or the fulfillment that we miss that the more important thing is the one who has promised. Father, we pray that when we hold expectations for how things should go, that we would be willing, even if in a few brief moments, to say, Lord, align the process of the fulfillment of this thing with your heart. Not our own expectations, not our own desires, not our own path, not our own process, Lord. But we submit ourselves to the wisdom of the kingdom, the wisdom of the Spirit, that confounds the wisdom of the wise of the world. 
Lord, and just like you have united us with the Father through a crucified Savior and Lord, who would have thought? Who would have expected that the victory that you spoke of to David, the victory that you reminded your people of in the prophets, happened on a cross. Lord, that is certainly an expectation that was exploded. And so, Lord, may the lordship of Jesus, may the victory of the cross, may the defeat of death in the empty tomb, may that become, Lord, the baseline for all of our expectations. That you are indeed a miracle-working God. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust more. Lord, we love you. Draw our heart closer to you. May we worship you, Lord. Worship you because we see you. Your holiness, your glory. Not about us, but about you. In Jesus' name, amen.